Hello, everyone, and welcome to Molly Movie Club. I'm Casey Muratori. I'm Anna Rutberg. And today we are doing 2001, A Space Odyssey, or as I like to call it, Anna's Big Day Out. <laughs> Anna's Big Day Out? Yes. Why? Explain. Um. So, so this movie, to me, feels like a field trip with Anna. Like, it's like... <laughs> okay. It's like okay. everything that you want to have happen in a day okay. is happening in this movie. <laughs> that's weird if that's how I want my day to go. Well, so, I, I mean, obviously, minus the part where you have a rogue AI, it's got I- extremely, like, dramatic, uh, symphonic yeah. music. Yeah, Classical, mm-hmm. like 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 real composed by real classical composers. Right. Yeah. Um, it's got tons of things happening in space mm-hmm. on spaceships mm-hmm. in a in a slice of life way. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. and it has like a and it's like slow and, and it has a surreal ending. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just it's just like Anna's big day. <laughs> Am I wrong? I mean, I guess no. I I think I do think like there's like a certain type of I, honestly, it's like the '60s. Like there's something about the like the really the, like the epic, long sort of epic slow movies from the '60s that like really clicks for my brain. Yes. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think when this movie ended. Didn't I look? I looked over you and I'm like, "That's how you movie. Like that's yeah, how yeah, you do a yeah, movie." Yeah, you did. You you were very. You were like, "That's how you make a movie." <laughs> that's that's how movie. That's how you movie. Well, 2001: A Space Odyssey. This is a movie that I have seen many times mm-hmm. because uh, it it gets shown as part of like film festivals, like yeah. 70 millimeter film festivals yeah. or Cinerama film festivals, these sorts of things. It's one of those movies that, you know, gets shown on actual film. Yes, I'm pretty sure, if see, we, did we see it together in 70 millimeter maybe? I bet we did at one point, seen it, back in the day at the Cinerama yeah. probably. And uh, it's also a movie that feels very, like you said, it feels like kind of of that time period has an intermission. Mm-hmm. It has an uh, the, the the entrance score, an exit score, and an entreact. Like it's like like the the intermission yeah. itself has a closing and beginning. Yeah. Like you know. Well, yeah, because like very, right off the bat. Because, like, as soon as the movie starts, it's just a black screen. Yes. And you're like, wait, did the movie, like, yeah. you know, because we were having issues, as having issues getting the yeah. Blu-ray, like, started. I'm like, yeah, oh, yeah. no, it's actually started. Yeah, and yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. that you turn the volume up. Um, but it's, like, immediately brings me back. Like, as soon as you start hearing that, it's the Ligeti, like, <laughs> thanks, Molly. So, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> uh, one thing we should bring up, uh, Anna has just been interrupted by uh, the actual, the titular Molly of Molly That's Movie right. Club. We used to have this recording studio set up so that the cats were not allowed in, and Molly would yowl. Oh, just so distraught. Yowl at the door. She'd be like, what is going on in there? Why is something happening? So we've changed it. We cleaned it up so that it's cat-proof. Like, there's no nasty little crevices for the cat to get into. Yeah. Uh, and so Molly is allowed in, and she is a wonderful mascot, but not always the quietest. So if you hear some yowls or some banging, or some, some banging, 
Uh, it is not because we are unprofessional <laughs> podcasters. It's because Molly is an unprofessional That's right. podcaster. She doesn't really understand. She doesn't understand. We'll mic her next time. We'll get oh, a little man. lavalier and put a collar, a collar leer on her. All right. I'm very sorry about that. All Anna, right. you were trying to discuss Leggetti. So, okay, the the movie opens. And if you okay, if you've ever had the experience of sitting in a theater like to see this movie, it's a great theater movie like highly recommend if you're gonna watch this yeah like if you have to choose between watching it at home and watching it in a theater go see it in a theater um but as soon as that music starts with that black screen it like it snapped me back to, to sit the the feeling of like sitting in the theater and they bring the lights down yes and you know people are still kind of rustling in their seats and whatever and that music starts playing yes um Ligeti's, i think it's lux Saturna or something like that okay there's like three different Ligeti pieces in this. Yeah, I noticed in the credits there were three. I knew Requiem, but I didn't know that oh, the no, other Oh, no, wait, you two... know what? I think this one, so. is this one Atmosphere? There's like Atmospheres, Requiem, and like Lux Eterna, and I yeah, can't remember yeah. which one's which. This might be Atmospheres, actually, the opening. Anyway. In a any Ligeti case, piece. it doesn't, you know, you can go look up the soundtrack. For those up, of you who don't know soundtrack. classical music, the Ligeti pieces are the ones that sound like people kind of screaming in agony. <laughs> yeah. The, well, <laughs> Very, yeah. like, creepy. Or the, or the opening isn't choral, um, but it's, like, it's that same sort of, like, dissonant, yeah. creepy... Um, well, did he invent that? Like, I mean, I don't really know classical music know. very well, but but is is he like the person who? I don't even know if he'd be classified as like classical. I'm he's assuming not, he's, he's like more 50s, modern. Right? Yeah, he's like more 1950s modern. Fifties or sixties. Um, it was right around the time, actually, when yeah. two thousand one was being made that that yeah. the, he wrote these. Right? Yeah, so I, I don't even think so. it would be classified as classical. Okay, but, so uh, sorry, classical might be the wrong term. But, but in any case, it's. Yeah. Really, like really good music choices, but that that feeling of sitting in the dark theater with that soundtrack playing uh, gets you right in the mood for this experience in a way that is rare for movies um, yeah. these days. I mean, or at all, playing some music, turning down the lights, asking you to sort of like settle into your seat and like start letting this this experience happen to you before there's any images on the screen. Um, you're already getting like feelings. Even just sitting at home, like all of the feelings that I would like, it brought me back. But maybe I, it's just me. Because no, it's it's not. I don't think it's just you. I don't think it's just you because I I would totally agree with that. And and I guess I would add a, a separate piece, which is that you know, at the risk of of literally bagging on modern movies like every podcast, which probably honestly is going to happen, but it feels classier. Is yeah. another thing I would say. Like, the openings of modern movies feel very product-oriented. They, they don't really feel classy. This felt like going to the opera or something, right? Yeah. And I don't know that that's necessarily good or bad. Like, I don't want to say that that's some. I, like, I don't even like going to the opera, so I'm not trying to say that that's automatically good. But it's, yeah. But there's a certain, there is a certain seriousness about the way the opening of this movie feels where it's ex- it's like, hey, this is for adults, is kind of like telegraphed almost mm-hmm. in a way that just is not a thing. I also now, feel like right? the one thought I kept having like throughout this movie was just the the confidence of the choices in it. Yeah, the sort of mm-hmm. idea that the director is like extremely specific. Like, they're making cho- yeah. like confident choices. Like Kubrick has a very clear um, sort of idea of what he wants to get across and some of these choices are kind of bold and out there but he's like confident about it and um 
And that's kind of a cool feeling. Yeah. Um, because even when things maybe don't quite work perfectly, they still work in a way, I think, because that intention is so clearly there. And that, and I think the music is a big part of that. And, you know, this opening, it's like, there's very clear intention. It's like, we want people, before they see anything, to be in a certain, like, mental state. Um, it's very relaxing. Yeah. And then the boom, that yeah. opening with the also Sprock Zarathustra, which I think is Ricard Strauss. Not Johann Strauss. There's <laughs> <laughs> two Strausses. Yes. Um, and it's two just, Strausses on the same movie is too many Strausses yeah. to keep straight. But that's like, and it's so intense, right? It's like so tonally different. Uh, and it's just, I feel like the impact of that moment is made better by the fact that you've been set up for it with this like, and it's all just feelings, right? It's like, it's music and imagery. That's all the opening is, right? Um and well, it's so emotionally and like mentally effective. The opening for this movie, the fr- the initial opening, like you said, is almost like more like a modern trailer for the movie. So the thing where, where you've got the, the planets, like the 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 the, the Earth, Moon, Sun yeah. in like alignment yeah. with that music, it feels like something that gets played before a movie now that advertises a different movie. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's like a self-contained little thing that's like... Yeah, because there's, there's just so much... Telling you, like, here's kind of the mood that's going to be this thing, but we're not really going to tell you anything else about it. Like, it's not... We don't have, like, a voiceover. We don't have, like, narration or anything. We're just... Or, like, scenes. We just have this thing that's like, this is what's going on. Yeah. Tonally. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, and, it, you know, the whole... The first, probably, what, like... 20 minutes, half an hour, I don't even know how long it is, of this movie is, is there's no dialogue. No. Uh, it's just... Well, I would say this movie, y- this movie is bizarre in the, we could maybe just transition to talking about this directly. Yeah. This movie is kind of unusual in that it has almost no dialogue in general. So, like, mm-hmm. the movie as a whole, like... Most of the spoken things in this movie are spoken by a computer, uh, like like you know, like humans say very little. The most, yeah, the, um, the, the scene with the most talking would be that sort of middle section with the guy, uh, the the first yeah. with following our first kind of character, yes, who goes up to the moon and he has a lot of like schmoozing with people and is yes. talking. Um, yeah. th- that's like the most dialogue centric part of the movie. The, yes, there's actual conversations. By the time we get to the second half of the movie. Um, well, it's it's a little bit before the second half. It's like the second two thirds of the movie or whatever. Um, you there's very few like human talking to human, mm-hmm. right? There's there's like maybe two conversations between the two humans. Yeah, everything else is just the AI. Uh, mostly the AI talking. Almost not by itself, but almost just like a yeah. monologue. Well, it's like talk, like, or it's talking to them, but they're not really they're not really responding. responding. Yeah, um, and you know, so it's very interesting in that this is a this is a film where while you couldn't take the words out of it because they're cert- they're they are necessary for a tone, and in mm-hmm. a couple seek you know. In a couple places, you need to hear the words to understand a few things. But other than that, almost everything that happens is visual. Like like everything that happens in this movie well, can be understood. Almost if you just turn the sound off, you could understand them still. I don't know if I totally agree with that. Oh, yes. But I think sound is actually super important to this movie. Mm. Dialogue. Oh, I don't mean it's not important. I'm just saying it's yeah. like you don't. You don't need it to understand. It's all yeah, on the screen. The sound in general, the choices of the music, obviously, like, kind of brilliant. 
I don't know. I don't really know like why they did that. Like probably know they Kubrick. Yeah, he, <laughs> yeah. No, that's what, back to the thing I said before. Yeah. The confidence. It's like it. It feels very much like the move a movie like made by a person. It um, does. Yeah. Not by like a committee. Um, my guess would be, and as a person who really likes classical music, because I and I often have, it's re- like I love music, but in terms of having like a deep sort of emotional experience with music it's almost always with some sort of like orchestral classical music is where you get those like feelings in your chest that like that feeling and i'm i'm assuming that the choice to do to to use existing classical music was just that it's it's like emotionally affecting on its own and and, like the movie relies really heavily on that the music like it's just a lot of like slow images of of things happening in space and the music is like a huge part of the whole feeling that you're getting right well Um, it it is um for certain parts of the movie and it's not for others so i guess what i would say is the initial part of the movie the music is very heavily implicated like there's a, a high percentage of things that you're seeing are scored. Uh, like, for example, like B- Blue Danube, right? Mm-hmm. I think it plays for, I mean, a good 10 minutes of this movie mm-hmm. uh, in the first part where they're kind of showing the elegance of space. Yeah. The second half is much less musically oriented except for the trippy, like, ending part. Yeah, I mean, it has the the, the theme for the, uh, I looked up, because it's a, it's a, I think it's like a Soviet composer. Okay. I can't think of his name. It's kind of a, a difficult name to okay. remember. Um, who does the, it's the it's the theme for like the, I don't know what the name of the ship is, the Jupiter ship, uh, the right. long, the really long one. Yeah. Um, and it's this really beautiful sort of theme that, that but, but that part of the movie is a lot more um, like the sound design is the bigger thing. A lot of like the breathing in this in the space helmet. It's like yeah, the, yeah. the feeling that you get of space in the first half is like yeah. elegant, yeah, beautiful, serene, yeah. Um, and then the second half is like terrifying, claustrophobic, yeah, yeah. Like, like it, it, the the sort of two very different experiences of space. Both of them are kind of true. Um, well, yeah, and um. I guess since we're we're maybe we'll skip talking about the beginning for now and we'll come back to it because what you brought up is interesting. So one of the things that happens in the first half of the movie versus the second half of the movie is that in the first half of the movie, and by half I just mean prior to the Jupiter yeah, mission. So let's I, just because yeah. it's not half time wise, but it's, no, no, you know. but it's just they feel like two very different yes. parts of the movie. So and yeah. there's a cut of like eighteen months, months or something. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like so, uh, in the first half of the movie. All of the shots are shot that are like just kind of showing you like an expansive view. Even the even things which probably which which are probably a little bit anachronistic because of how they were thinking about things. Like for example, you know the the way that the doctor who's going up to kind of give the briefing and mm-hmm. and look at the monolith. The way he gets from Earth to space is by taking a flight on Pan Am, yeah. which doesn't even exist anymore. Right. Yep. And part of that, I think, I would imagine, is that people living in that time period who would have seen air travel prior to deregulation would have thought that in general, we were going to have like spacious, capacious travel, mm-hmm. right? And that you can see that reflected in the film as they're showing all the things. It's very open. 
It's mm-hmm. very comfortable. Mm-hmm. Even this is in space traveling to the moon. It's very comfortable. You know, from nowadays, I've ridden coach, mm-hmm. you know, on an airplane. That's how I get from place to place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I know that the thing that goes to, to, to space will probably be really cramped. Yeah. <laughs> and they'll fit as many people in as they can. Uh, you know, maybe that's not true for some of the reason, like weight or something. I don't know. So I, I'm just saying it was interesting to see, like, it's definitely reflected the time period. And, and so a lot of that shots in the beginning, though, everything looks beautiful, clean, spacious. Mm-hmm accommodating uh it's very welcoming you wouldn't be afraid to take this flight to the moon at all there's no shake you never we never even see a rough landing it's like pristine right yeah yeah and uh <clears throat> it's like a ballet i mean i think like it's what, or a dance Blue like danube playing in the background yeah, gives it like that waltz. feel of just like light moving across the ballroom it's right? so elegant it's so it's so uh i mean yeah. i think it's i'm assuming intentionally too like really playing off of that vision of at the time of what the future was going to look like you can really feel yeah. that and it's like it, it does the thing too where watching it now you're like <laughs> Like, all these things that make it feel dated, <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, Where you're yeah. like, okay. But just funny, because in the second part, the second half, that never happens. Well, here's what I'm going to say. In the second half, they keep the competence, like, the cleanliness, that this looks like a yeah. really, like, well-designed spaceship. The astronauts are extremely competent. Like, mm-hmm. all that stuff is maintained. But the thing I was going to bring up, uh, because I'd like to talk a little bit more about the ballet part separately. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, but the part that I wanted to mention was that they start shooting things with that fisheye lens yeah. to show you Hal's view. Yep. And it really managed just that, just that one difference mm-hmm. is able to creep you out yeah. all the time. So I don't know if people would really appreciate just how good this is because you might not realize it Mm -hmm. but that entire sequence of the movie there's really nothing overtly creepy there's no jump scares there's no loud violin that like happens or something that screeches you out there's no creepy music really the only thing that is changing during that whole first part of the jupiter mission is just the decision to hold these fisheye shots and have the computer voice just be slightly unsettling, mm-hmm. the way that it talks. And I felt like that part of the movie, it's probably my favorite part of this movie, is how well they were, well, he was able to make, I, I say they, but I don't really know how much it has to do. I know. Most I, yeah. of the time it's a team. With Stanley Kubrick, I'd ever know. He might have been there like telling him, no, 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 you're pointing the camera wrong. Like, I, I don't know, right? But anyway, uh, probably, you know, his, his DP was probably someone he was very good. I don't mm-hmm. know. I, I, I don't know film history well enough to talk about Stanley Kubrick. But anyway, so uh, I really thought that part was remarkable. It's It's really, really solid filmmaking. And I thought that that was worth noting because the difference between those two parts of the film, the sets are not like creepy or anything. They kind well, you know what I mean. You could have shot those differently, and they would have just felt very similar to the original part of the film. But because of the way they framed it, they were able to get that feeling of you're being watched and not really by someone friendly. It's just very good. And uh, well, there's 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 a few things I think that contribute to making that scene, that that part of the movie 
kind of this like gives you this sense of like impending something like sinister something sinister yeah. right and uh i think I, I sort of mentioned this before but the um the sound design of the in you know anytime they're doing like an eva thing the the breathing like yeah. it's because anytime you hear that right that's yeah. like very unsettling yeah. like that's creepy um, and it just goes on for a really long time and it's, it drags out like the, the sort of the patience, right. Of this movie where it, it takes, it really takes its time. And in that part of the movie, the buildup of dread, right. Is like very effective. I think, um, I mean, I think there's going to be some viewers who struggle maybe with the, just how long some of the, the <coughs> shots are in this movie, how, how, yeah. how kind of slow, the pacing maybe would be well. I would um, include myself. So, mm-hmm. <clears throat> gosh, there's so many things to talk about that we're skipping yeah, over. But I know it's let's just, we just got to go in what just, order they just, come up. Yeah, there's just nothing go we with can the flow. do. Just Hopefully, we flow. won't forget mm-hmm. uh, to cover them. But I actually do. So I don't like, as we've said before, very often. You know, once in a great while, I think Blade Runner would be the only one that I can think of. Once in a great while, I'm okay just hanging out in a place, right? Um, but most of the time I'm not. And I would say in 2001, it's definitely too far down that line for me. So the problem for me is that I just don't delight very much in the mechanics of anything. Like I just don't care that much. Mm -hmm. So once I know, um, you know, for example, okay, uh, what's, what we're doing here is we're flying the EVA out to this location to fix something. That's the information I needed. I, I don't really need to see it. Mm-hmm. I, I don't really care how it comes out of the thing. I don't care which buttons you push on the control panel to make that happen. It's just not relevant to me. Like, like my brain doesn't care. Mm-hmm. And so one of the problems that I have with this movie, one of the reasons why I don't consider it like um, one of my favorites, because I do like a lot of things about the movie. Uh, yeah. But the biggest thing that I don't like is that pacing choice. And I don't think I would change it. I think... I think the movie should have done what it did. Right. It's just, it's not my kind of movie. It's, it's a, like a personal it's a great, preference issue. Yeah, it's yeah. a great job at doing a thing that I don't actually like very mm-hmm. much. Right? Which is, I, I tend to really get into, which is why I say also seeing it in a theater, I think. I, and is, well, I would I would add that too. That That's true for Blade Runner as well. That mm-hmm. watching this at home, if you've never seen this in the theater you probably don't know which of those two you'll think about this movie. I have seen it in the theater, so I can definitively say mm-hmm. I just generally don't like it. Okay. But it's one of those things that um, you would never know until you actually get the experience. You, may, If you watch this only at home, you might be like, yeah, it was kind of boring. But then you see it on the big screen, you're mm-hmm. like, no, it wasn't. Like, I was in the capsule and I felt, you know. Yeah. And so I do think you have to, but having seen it in actual 70 millimeter at the Cinerama in huge, like the way it was meant. Yeah. Uh, it's still just too slow. It's less slow. <laughs> it does still help. It's just, it doesn't quite get yeah. there for me. Yeah. I mean, I think I totally get that. Um, and I don't, for this movie, I don't really have that problem. I think partly cause it's like, well, I like space stuff and I like classical music. So I, it's like, it's doing a lot of things that I enjoy. Um, I, I also, also think, think at that time, because no one had ever done anything like this, I don't feel. I was actually just going to say that, yeah. I feel like that's a, another reason why I say I wouldn't change a thing. Like, I, I, I don't think they should have done it any differently than they did. Yeah. It's just for me watching it now, 
I'm like, nah. Yeah, I mean, you, you know? look at the effects in this movie, and they're, they're flawless. Phenomenal. They're flawless. I mean, it it's uh, it's pretty astounding at the time. And I, I had to keep <laughs> reminding myself while watching it, I'm like, at the time, this would have been mind-blowing to people to see some of these things. Yeah, um, I would assume that people who went into the theater when this first came out would have felt like it, they almost were seeing something impossible, would yes. be my guess. Yeah. Because it, most of the shots in this movie they just look real. Yes. Like there's, you would, yeah, we're out in space. Yep. Doing space stuff. We're in the ring. Like, I don't even know how they shot them. I assume they actually built a barrel drum they did. set yeah. and spun and it. They and it's just like, that's yeah. insane. I don't think anyone was doing that sort of thing at the time no. for space. And I mean, totally... there's probably some fairly elaborate special effects that had been created up to that time because people did some crazy stuff in filmmaking. But I don't think there's anything like this. No, for it's space. It, it's totally immersive. You, yes. you're. I mean, today you'll see effects and stuff that pull you out of the movie, right? But but this was just nothing pulls you out of it, um, as far as I can think. I can't think of a single moment where I was like, oh no, absolutely. This movie, I guess there's only like one or two times where I would say it wasn't flawless, and that was really just at the beginning. I feel like the perspective change is slightly wrong on. It looked like there were some shots of like floating things in space that don't properly rotate. Well, with there's the a camera. few that are just still images, I yes. think, that are floating. Those look wrong to me. Everything else in this movie looks exactly right and way better than a modern movie. So, mm-hmm. it, like, if you compare this to something like Guardians of the Galaxy or something where they're trying to do flashy space stuff, mm-hmm. all that stuff looks fake to me. Not a single thing looks right. Yes, yeah. In this movie, it's so solid that I just 100% believe it's an actual ship in space that you yep. just stuck a camera on. Oh, and the designs are incredible. It's I mean, these insane. are the miniatures are so detailed and uh, it's insane. I think actually one of the miniatures we've seen at the at, uh, Mopop in Seattle, I think in the basement there, they have one. Of oh, the, okay. Uh, hanging from the ceiling. All it's right. one of the miniatures for the Jupiter, the long ship. It's, it's truly remarkable yeah. and looks far better than anything you see today, even though they had much less to work with. Yep. Um, oh, it's, it's yeah, and it's everything is lit. Like, I think we talked about this a little with Interstellar last week. Yes. How the lighting, that stark kind of yes. black and white, the high contrast lighting, like, you just believe you're there. Um, yes, and, the and, lighting looks absolutely perfect, and uh, it's... <sighs> so, the other thing about it is that it always feels like the set is complete, so uh, even to a ridiculous extent. So there's a shot in this movie where they're like at an excavation site on the moon. Mm-hmm. That shot still looks better than when they set stuff on the moon in like these modern Disney movies. Mm-hmm. Like something about like just the way that people were meticulous about things then. Like nowadays I I tend to feel this really clear like unsettling feeling that a shot is sort of taking place in a small area with some fake stuff behind it that doesn't really work. Yeah. And you never got this sense, even though this movie presumably had to fake all this stuff with none of, like they had no CG, they had no- It was no, probably like matte paintings and stuff. Uh, whatever yeah. they did. And yet it's flawless, which is weird. It's you just You never remarkable. question it at, at any Ever. point. Yeah. It's it's just incredible. The only two were the still- the still images moving parts the only time when I'm like that looks bad uh, and it's just a couple shots at the very o- at the opening yeah. it, it, so it's really strange and again like it's it's sad because it's you know it just reminds you that like okay in the 1960s you could do 
pretty much perfect like movies in space that look perfect. They look exactly right. Yeah. And now we can't. And this is why we were talking about Christopher Nolan, why we were like, you know, I, I don't love Interstellar as a movie, but that ability to get it feeling like that was really pretty remarkable because right. you just it just doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. And like there's definitely there's there's parts of this that I literally can't even really figure out how they did. The big one is like <laughs> oh yeah. The well like anytime they're in like zero G. Yeah. I'm like, how did they do that? Like cause it's which genu- part which part in well, zero not, G or not not like the grip shoes part. I know how they did that. Okay. Right? But the um like the at the end when he's he goes out Dave goes out to get to retrieve the body uh. of his friend. Like he's flopping all around in a way that lo- it's like, and then you know uh, when he 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 uh, that's a good point breaks yeah. back into uh, <clears throat> you know he's the explosive bolts on the pod and gets back in. That looks almost like they must have filmed it in like one of the the planes Those that goes planes, down. Yeah. And I was like, did they do that? I don't um, know. But you're you're one hundred percent correct. It's like, not I like ne- you know I never thought and about when he's, that. When he's in, he's turning Hal off and he's floating in there. Yeah. I'm like, how did they do that? I it, don't know. It's like it, it's maybe it was like underwater, <clears throat> but wouldn't you see like bubbles and stuff? I and, like, I do not know. And you know, I didn't even think of that. Thinking about it now, the shot where they blow the bolts on the mm-hmm. the thing to shoot him back into the airlock, I have no idea how they shot that. The only thing I just think is maybe they did one of those diving planes maybe. or like a wind tunnel. But if that or shot, something. now that I think about it, is like a freaking masterpiece. I mean, the the fact that I didn't even think about that yeah, is yeah. nuts. Yeah. yeah, you're right. And, and I like I, right. I can't figure it out. I don't I don't know. Like a lot of the stuff like the floating pen, you can, you know, you're like, oh, they had it on a glass thing that they were rotating. Right? You can figure right. it out. There's ways you might have been able yeah. to do that trickery, but yeah, there's so much motion in that shot where he blows through yeah. the airlock. Well, and the gravity he stuff too. He bounces like, off, it yeah. comes back, he grabs the thing and swings. Like it's so elaborate and it's all one continuous shot, yeah. so they can't yeah, gosh, I don't know. That's really remarkable. You're yeah, right. Yeah. Maybe and they did shoot it on the Vomit Comet. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, when like, they go up? Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. That's all. I, I really can't. Do they even have that in 1960? Well, that's the thing is I don't I, know. Okay. I really, I'm sure, I'm sure you can go read all about this. I'm sure there's books on the making now of this Now I movie. want to because you're totally right. I have no idea how you could have done yeah. that. But, they but I mean like a lot of stuff like really the, the rotating rooms and stuff, like that's fairly straightforward. It, it's really impressive. It, it it works perfectly and visually but um, but it's fairly straightforward to figure out how they would that made that just make a big rotating room. But but yeah yeah um, yeah. I mean, it's amazing that they did. But it's still yeah, you're right. The size That's of it, way it's more huge. straightforward. You can think mechanically how you do it. But the, you're right. The zero g stuff because there's no way to simulate that other than going up into space or like you said, maybe underwater. But underwater doesn't really look like yeah. that. Yeah. Like I wouldn't. I mean, maybe you could do it, but it it doesn't really look like those shots looked. To me, no, that, and I don't know how you get rid of the bubbles, like you said. Uh, no, um, I just really, I can't figure it out. I can't figure it out. So, well, um, so there's a lot of stuff that we kind of just yeah, like jumped. We could over. always just go. Maybe we go back to the beginning and start and work our way through. Yeah, fairly yeah, chronologically. I mean, so the opening of this movie. So one of the things that happened that is probably atypical for people. I don't know, but for me, mm-hmm. is that uh, the first time I saw this movie, I had actually already read the book. Oh, interesting. Which was weird. Yeah, that right? is weird. Uh, because this was not, this is not a movie that was made out of a book. 
Uh, they made it the same time together, basically? No, it's basically, uh, my understanding, uh, and, you know, I guess don't quote me on this, but my recollection from high school when I read the book was that basically, like, it's Arthur Arthur C. Clarke, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it is. uh, Wrote the screenplay with Stanley Kubrick or whatever, you know, like, like, to make this movie, and then went and wrote a book to sell with it. I don't know why, just he wanted to or, you know, cause to make money. I have no idea why. But so there was a book that came out a- after. It was not like, oh, the they weren't, as far as I know, they aren't like simultaneously released. I mean, maybe they were, mm-hmm. but I don't think so. So I think it was just kind of like, yeah, there's now a book for the movie. And uh, one of the things that, that, you know, the, it's not a problem, but it means that watching the movie, I have no idea which things I would have actually picked up on had I not already been told. Yeah, well, there's a lot. Um, I, I'm assuming, having never read the book, I'm assuming that a lot of things that are very not concrete in the movie are quite concrete in the book. That would be my yeah. guess. And uh, I'm not, I don't think I would like that better, but. <laughs> I don't know that it was better. So I would say that having read the book, I do think that some of the attention to detail in the movie is really cool because the choices of not explaining things is really cool because it makes everything feel very solid because you did have an explanation. Like, there's an explanation for everything. Right. And that they didn't feel compelled to include it in the movie was great. Mm -hmm. It's very good. Well, you've said this to me before about world building, uh, as like a rule yeah. for world building that I think is really good, which is like, you know, you figure it all out yeah. for yourself. Yeah. But most of it you will never actually say explicitly. Yeah, because uh, to me that's the same as when you shoot the real world. Right. Like it's like, okay, you know, when you shoot at least to me, when you shoot a movie of the real world, I'm like, hey, what's this movie? Oh, it's it's about this like guy and this girl who like fall in love because they accidentally meet in the park. You know, we don't start with a preamble that's like, once upon a time, there was, you know, uh, a primordial soup and (laughs) out came, you know, like, we know, like, human DNA and all this stuff is like this incredibly complex backstory, but that's not, you know, it's just what created this world. And having all of that be real is great because it means that it feels grounded and like there's this rich... Mm-hmm. place you're experiencing with all of these rules that you don't necessarily know and I lo- and I love that right that's mm-hmm. great but I don't want you to go tell me and you see that mistake made a lot of times to me anyway it's a mistake you know like metachlorians or whatever right it's like yeah. I don't need to know how the cellular structure yeah. of this world works unless that's what it's about if this no, isn't yeah. about cellular biology if that's not the plot of this movie then I don't really want to get into that and I feel like this movie does a great job mm-hmm. of just going like look we're going to show you the experience of these events. Yeah. We're not going to sit around and explain stuff that you don't need to know to enjoy it because uh, frankly it would just be kind of pedantic. Yeah, no, and it it's it this movie feels real and immersive and uh and like you just don't question any of it. You're like, yeah. I think the only times the only times in the movie where I'm pulled out <clears throat> of it slightly is when it's like very 60s. Um and that's really only in the in the um the, the like Pan Am yeah, and yeah. the and the secretaries yeah, and, yeah, the, yeah. and the like buttons for the language yeah. and like your Christian name and like all this stuff where yeah. you're just like that's <clears throat> it, it, it dates it right which is 
probably the only part of the movie that's kind of like a bummer. I mean, I, not necessarily a bummer because in some ways it's like that nostalgia, that that feeling makes the movie. It's like, oh, yeah, it's a movie from the 60s and it places it in its time period and it's kind of fun. It's fun. <clears throat> um, to be fair, I don't know how dated it really is because it takes place in 2001. That's a good point. We did not have, you know ubiquitous cell phone usage well, or anything like that at that time. The other thing too is a lot of video the- phones would have been rare. They existed at two, in 2001, but they were not like particularly uh, widespread. In fact, the fact that they had one in a home, we did not have that in 2001. No, I, I Obviously, we had none of the space stuff in 2001. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I do so, think that- you know, it's not 2022. It's called 2001, A Space Odyssey. No, it's true. And, and, and you know, it did get some things sort of right, like the video the f- video phone chat, right? And, um, yeah. and I do think in general, the 60s was a really cool time for design in general. Yeah. Um, so you see some of the chairs they're sitting in and stuff. And yeah. you're like, these look really cool. Yeah. Um, and weirdly futuristic because that was the aesthetic of that time period. And so it just kind of works because there's something weirdly futuristic about stuff from the 60s. Uh, yes, yeah. And just inherently, I think, yeah. just because there was a lot of radical changes happening at the time, space yes. stuff was happening at the time. So mentally we're associating a lot of imagery space imagery from the 60s with with the future we're, even though it's the past right um so it's not necessarily like the design or the look that's necessarily the problem for me but there's just a few a few moments where you just you just feel you feel that that that's sort of like eh, it's a little bit old-fashioned in the way that the rest of the movie um is just completely immersive and feels yeah. like its own time. Well, I th- also, I'd say, like, it's, it's, it, some of those things, like, you know, we've got secretaries wearing pink in this thing. Uh, they feel, they would feel a little bit dated in actual 2001, but they wouldn't feel nearly as dated as they feel in 2022. And so I also, like, always, the, the fact that you watch this movie and see all of this advanced space stuff means, like, it feels like it's taking place in 2075, mm-hmm. when it would certainly feel very day. But the important thing to remember is, no, actually, it's taking place in 2001, according to them, which means that actually it's not, A, not that dated, but also, B, massively over... Uh, optimistic, right? I mean, like, we were well, that, nowhere near that oh, even today, yeah. but, I mean, so it's that, like, nah. The 60s in space stuff yeah. was, that was, it, right? I mean, at that time, they just imagined it was yeah. only going to go up from there, right? I yeah. mean, if you go to the moon uh, yeah. in such a short period of time, like, what else are you capable of? They right? assumed so, that people would keep working on space program yeah, stuff, that but That sort of optimism, yeah. right, was... was um, they extrapolated, like, linearly, right? They were like, mm-hmm. oh, if you just keep going, right. you'd have this stuff. And you're probably right. We could have done a manned mission to Jupiter in 2001 if people had continuously worked on the space program yeah. with the same kind of diligence that they did from 1960 to 1970 for 70 to 80, 80 to 90, 90 to 2000, 2001, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, sure, you could have. That's totally realistic. Mm-hmm. It's just no one did. So yeah. that was But in terms of the rest of it, the, uh, you know, the design of the ships, it doesn't feel dated. I mean, they, no. they're very cool and interesting. Yeah. But they don't feel like they're from a time period necessarily. So let's talk about a couple things. Um, so the beginning of the movie. Yes. There's a lot, to, a lot to say. Yeah. The beginning of the movie is basically like, we're hanging out with Tapir. Um, and by we, yeah. I mean early humans. Early man, yes. Early, early man is hanging out with Tapirs. Um, and, and a tiger or something. There's a leopard, I think, yeah. Um, 
We could ask Molly. And, uh, you know, the beginning of this movie is really pretty interesting. Again, I uh, I wish I could know what I would have thought of it if I hadn't have read the book. Because it, I really do think it does a pretty good job of explaining what happens. With one exception that I don't know how most people would or wouldn't take it. That okay. was, again, I don't know whether I would well, have picked I'm up on it. Well, having never read the book and never... I've never read like an analysis of this movie. I only know what I've gathered. Well, why from don't it. you describe what happens at the beginning of this movie, and we'll see whether you pick up on everything that that supposedly is happening I in see. this. Okay, so I mean, the beginning of this movie is basically the dawn of man. It says right. It says it on the screen, um, yeah. And so the idea, I suppose, is that the monolith appears to humans at at moments of uh, of basically like. Their the evolution, right? Moments of of like of of humans taking the next step on their sort of journey, mm-hmm. and in this case, it is it is tools. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we're basically we we see these early humans, which are basically just monkeys, right? Apes. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you know, just basic living, just eating, getting killed, yeah. um, surviving, yeah. fighting, fighting with you know other tribes, um, and. Uh, one of them discovers a. Uh, I mean, this scene, this scene is just incredible too. It's really amazing. The acting, the performances of these actors, uh, I find pretty insanely impressive. Yeah, the they really capture the like. Oh, yeah. You're sort of like a monkey, but sort of like a man. Like they really, it's they, really they, very their movements good. are cr- extremely animalistic. Good. The the yeah. attention to detail. They're really whoever yeah. these actors are. Yeah. They uh, they did a great job acting like apes. Yeah. Um, but this scene is incredible. He's uh, kind of just playing with this bone with, at the skeleton, this like tapir skeleton. He starts uh, he starts kind of smashing the bones, and he kind of realizes like, ah, <laughs> right. Um, I mean, it's probably it's one of the most iconic scenes in all of film. It's amazing. Um, it the editing. I mean, the editing in this entire movie is just like insane. Uh, yeah. Just another level of brilliant. Um, so yeah. Discovers that with this, you know, with these weapons, we can we can hunt, we can we can kill, um, and uh, and we can fight. Yeah. Um, and uh, in this sort of with this discovery, and they start walking on two legs too. Um, yeah. This sort of, as you know, you you're you've got your hands because they've got to hold now. it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So now they're they at the by the end they are looking more human like yes. they're moving more human like, um, and so the monolith appears to them. At this moment of of sort of the next step of human evolution, and uh, <clears throat> and that's that's basically what I'm getting from that scene. So that's exactly what I'm. I'm glad you said all that. Okay. That's exactly what I would have gotten from that scene as well. I think had I not read the book. Okay. That is not what happens in the book. Period. As far as I know, because Arthur C. Clarke, as far as I know, just wrote out exactly what was supposed to happen. And having watched it, having read the book, I can see exactly how they tried to say this thing, but it doesn't quite come across. See, I, I and I guess what I would say too is like, before you say what you're going to say, yeah, yeah, like the movie is the movie, yeah, yeah, and I feel like it's in the movie though. It's just hard okay. to piece together. I'm just yeah. saying though, I think. What the movie does manage to communicate um, with the monolith, yes, 
throughout the whole movie is is and with just that stuff about learning the tool use and all that yeah yeah but it's, I, it's easy to underestimate just how hard it is to explain that without the Disney voiceover well, but, but and I, it's remarkable well, that they're able to what do I was it. actually yeah. gonna say is sort of the opposite okay. is I think that they managed to to visually kind of show something yeah that is actually hard to say. Um, yeah, no, I guess that's true too. Like that's yeah. how I sort of feel about yeah. it. Is like, how do you communicate like the next evolutionary step of humans, yeah. especially at the end when we don't even really know what that next step is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and Correct. so having yes. these like, you know, having the monolith, right? The symbol of the monolith is just like insane, right? Yes. It's so. I mean, it's uh, it's easy to take for granted, I think now because the monolith is so like iconic. Yes, yes. But the idea that that's like. What you would use to try to communicate like a concept like this is yes. is just nuts. It's brilliant. Um, and in I, you know, but I, I, so what? What is the what is the uh, the book version and the movie version? So it's explicitly in the movie. And my assumption was, like I said, I'm glad you said that because my assumption was if I had watched the movie without reading the book, mm-hmm. I would not have picked up on this. Okay, because it's a little too subtle. In my opinion. Okay. Everything mm-hmm. else about the opening is perfect. This part's a little too subtle. If <sighs> I almost would have wished they just didn't do it. Meaning they said, like, that's not that good. Let's not do that. I don't know. But, you know, they were writing what they were writing. And I guess both Kubrick and Clark wanted it this way. So this is what they did. So almost what you said, but it's a little backwards. What actually happens is that the monolith teaches them about tools. So the idea is that Mm. man is on the plane and it's just, they're just monkeys. Mm -hmm. The monolith is a thing that aliens put there. Because I guess they chronologically, they they, they touch the monolith. They touch the monolith. They learn tool use. It basically, it says, this is the way forward Mm -hmm. for you, Mm -hmm. right? This is what you would do. Mm -hmm. It's giving, the monolith is giving the gift of tool to one species on, you know, Earth. And I don't know if the implication is that it's just waiting for a a species to get advanced enough that it could touch the monolith and learn this or not. I don't quite remember that part. But point being, the monolith teaches them to use the tools. Mm -hmm. And that part I don't think would have come across to me when I was watching this. Knowing it, you can see how they tried to do it. Because what happens is when the person who dis- d- picks up the bone mm-hmm. first, mm-hmm. it cuts to them looking up at the monolith at the sky really quick. Yes, it's yes, an intercut. Yes, yes. I can see they were trying to say, like, he's thinking about what the thing told him, right? Mm. It just isn't enough. Like, there's no way I would have thought that, I don't think. Some people might. If you were predisposed to think that, I can totally see that you would. But if... To the degree that that someone thought this was an important part of the movie, and I don't know if they did or not, I think there wasn't enough context, because I think I probably would have interpreted it the way you said. I'll never know, because I didn't get to to see it fresh, but it it doesn't quite work for me that way. I would say also, for the movie, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't, I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, because the ending is also unchanged by that interpretation like well it does make the ending make a little more sense in the in the in one way which is that if you think of the monolith in the beginning and the end as something that 
itself creates an evolutionary step, you can understand why you turn to the star child a little bit, maybe more, a little bit more. Again, doesn't matter. Like, I think the movie works either way. It's just like, okay, I can kind of see why that lines up a little bit better with the beginning and the end. But anyway, so... So yeah, anyway, glad to hear you say that because that's exactly what I thought mm-hmm. I would have thought. I've always assumed that what you were saying is what mm-hmm. I would have thought. And I would not have thought that the monolith taught them because yeah, it's not, it yeah. doesn't really seem like that. No, I, yeah, me. I don't, that's definitely not concrete in the movie. No, but you can um, see how they were trying to say it, but it just of, didn't quite work. I, I, I don't get the, this is not a movie that's trying to be concrete no. though. And no. that's, I think that's to its benefit. Like I, I think. Totally agree. This this movie will become every every bit of detail and specific that specifics that you would sort of try to add to this movie would make it worse. So totally agree. Um, totally agree. Yeah. The idea that you might interpret it both ways, I think, is fantastic. Like I I yes. like when a movie asks a viewer to to think right to to come up with their own ideas about what they're experiencing, and and that might end up with multiple people having multiple different interpretations. And that's that's the kind of fiction I, I tend to like. I like there not being like a clear yes, answer. Yes, and the ending I think works very well yeah. in that regard, which I guess we'll get to in a second. The other thing I was going to say is one thing that is not clear in the movie, which I think is very interesting, uh, because it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of cool, is that the monolith looks awesome in oh, this yeah. movie, right? Yeah. Uh, and you might go like, oh, well, is it just like, hey, we had this idea that there should just be this big kind of block sitting there? No. One of the things they talk about in the book that's really interesting, at least I thought it was, is the dimensions of the monolith are one foot by four feet by nine feet, which are the three perfect squares. So it's one squared, two squared, three squared. Mm. And the implication is that it would keep, it's like a multidimensional thing that is a perfect square in every dimension. So in time, it would be 16 long, quote unquote, whatever that is. Like, And in like fifth dimension, it would be, right? Uh, so I, I thought it was kind of interesting because they actually had like a science-y reason mm-hmm. for this thing being the shape. And then when they made the thing, that actually looks really cool. Yeah. And so I thought it was kind of interesting how, like, it wasn't just arbitrary. Like, mm-hmm. that really cool, iconic shape actually came also from a science kind of thing That's they really were doing. neat, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's, and the movie never explains it, as we've talked about, like... It doesn't really need to, it doesn't, yeah, it, yeah. Well, it doesn't need to, and it would make it worse if it did. Yeah. Uh, because so much of this movie is, is, like, that feeling of things being beyond your understanding, right? And yeah, the monolith is just brilliant in in its like, It really is. It's the, kind of remarkable. And the way it's yeah. shot. I mean, like this movie is just it's nuts. Like the, I don't I can't think of anything that's been made in the last like 20, 30 years that even comes close to this level of just like I don't even know what the right word is for it. It's like it's like it always existed somehow. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um manifestation maybe. Yeah, I, it's just like and the just the imagery the editing, the the shot composition, the sounds, it's hard to believe a human made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, I don't know. It's, it's like the monolith. It's just <clears throat> like this thing that exists that appeared. That's what it feels like, right, to me, this movie. So uh, during the first part where they kind of go up to the moon and we follow the doctor who's who's coming up from Earth to basically go and say, like, hey, guys, everyone keep your mouth shut. Yeah. Basically yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, we ain't gonna tell anyone about this. So, uh, during that sequence, I guess I would say 
I do feel like I don't love the the feel of those scenes much. It almost feels like I'm too far away to hear what the heck is happening. It's just weird. It's like they. it feels a little bit distant in an odd way that I'm not sure what the point of it is. I'm not sure why I'm meant to feel that way, if I was meant to feel that way. Uh, there's a lot of weird stuff like, you know, we're we're shooting this conference room and we're literally just going to like watch this guy like walk up to the podium from far away. Uh, and then he's going to say just some, it, it's like, I guess it does do a reasonable job of making me feel like this is more of a documentary, which might be kind of what they were going for with that. Like, like just supposed to feel like it's really happening, but I don't know that that added much for me. It just kind of feels like dull during those scenes. And you know, it's it's. I would say it's matter of fact, almost to an an unpleasant extreme for me. Uh, another example would be: we don't know that there's another monolith on the moon. Uh, no one says that, right? Well, it's, but it's, it's sort of you're you're you know before <clears throat> you end up knowing before you see it, right? Like you. No, you don't. You don't. Nobody says that there was another monolith on the moon because no, but you know that there. Like, I mean, at least for me, it's like you. You know, they're talking about a thing that they've found, and they're talking about this gravitational thing, and they show the map. And, like, at that point, at least for me, I'm like, oh, it's a monolith. Well, all I'm saying is that you don't know for sure that that's what's happening. And obviously, they don't know because they have no idea that there was a previous monolith. We were little, you know, apes mm-hmm. running around the time. So they've they've never seen one of these before, right? We have because we're the audience, but they've never have. So we have no idea that that's what's there. Maybe you get an inkling that it is. Maybe you don't. Yeah, because I think by the time, but, like, when you eventually do see it, it's this really cool moment, at least for me. No, that's what I was about to say, is like, I, I, I would dramatically part ways with you there. Hmm. The first shot, when you see that there, that, that really confirms, if you were suspecting that, that confirms it, or if you weren't, you didn't know what they found, that's like, oh gosh, it's another one of these things, which I could equally see being a reaction you'd have if you didn't predict that it was a monolith is like a far away shot where it's this little tiny thing way off in the distance down in a cave. And it's just like really weird, like inverted Hitchcock where it's like the most important thing in this shot is barely visible kind of a thing. And so to me, that was really, like I said, it it felt very matter of fact, almost in a bad way. Like to me, it's hmm. like dramatic that, oh crap, there's another monolith on the moon. Obviously, the fourth time you've seen this movie, that's not interesting. But the first time you saw it, that might have been, and it's really muted. It's, like, really turned all the way down. I kind of like, I I guess we're going to disagree on this. I kind of like that. Uh, I like that at this point, they're just dealing with it like people would deal with it, right? They don't don't know that what we know, right? They haven't seen what we've seen. Well, sure, but... They're just kind of dealing with it like... You know, you would imagine that it would actually be dealt with. Um, I don't know if I believe that. Wouldn't you be like, holy shit? I, I mean, I would be freaking out. I wouldn't be like, oh, you know, there's a, a large one by four by nine block on the moon. Hmm, yeah, okay, I'll note that in my log. I don't know. I don't know. I guess you know? I just don't, I don't get quite the same feeling from it. And like, I think when you've, that, that scene where they go, they finally get, get out there in the spacesuits and go to see it. I love that scene. That scene I is- love the scene. It's that choice of first shot to me that I don't love. It, it really like turns the dial down on this thing and it's really weird. The rest of the like, scene I like, I feel like for, but for that me, I didn't like. For me, the movie, it's, it like builds up the anticipation, 
which it does all the time, especially in the in the Jupiter part, right, is like all about like slow burn, building up anticipation, building up. And I feel like there's something about like seeing the monolith, you know, like as you say, it's kind of it's like you can see the dig site and they're in their spacesuits. Right. And it's it's kind of there. And because uh, I guess for me at this point, like it's not a surprise. I mean, I guess it's also hard to know because I've seen this movie so many times um, that I can't really remember what I thought the first time I saw it. I mean, if it were me, mm-hmm. which it definitely isn't because, you know, uh, I am not really this kind of a film kind of person. But if it were me, I wouldn't have even put them in that order. So if it were me... I would have let the audience believe that there was an epidemic on the moon right up until the point where they walk into the hangar. And I would have had a shot where we are walking into the hangar with the people and then it you opens up. You mean the dig up. site? Yeah, the dig okay. site. And it opens up and there's the monolith and you realize for the first time that there's no epidemic and that was a BS cover story. Nah. I would, nah. that is how I would nah. absolutely have written that, nah. right? Like a, no way would I do like... Oh, tell them that that's a BS cover story before we reveal the monolith. No chance I would do that. No, I, I, I'm, I'm gonna disagree. I'm gonna disagree with you. I don't think that makes it better. Well, um, of course you don't, because this is Anna's big day out. This entire movie was made for you. They had like a, they had a little like profile. Like even though you weren't born yet, mm-hmm. Stanley Kubrick had like a little picture you know, of you taped to the cameras. Like, remember, we're making this for Anna. You know, the other thing I think we didn't we didn't talk about. You skipped over, which I think is, I think we've argued oh, about. I, I skipped over. I skipped over it. We've you don't, no blame no blame for you no blame for you well, you, you, you didn't started, skip over just you me you just started talking just about the moon stuff okay, okay? alright because I think if I remember Hit correctly me. we've talked about this before and you don't like it which is nuts. But okay. Which is the the match cut, the 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 most iconic match cut, perhaps in like all oh, the, of cinema. The bone throw. Yeah. The bone throw. Which is just like, like what is there to say that hasn't been said about this? But it's just so good. Um, it's like the best. Was I? I I, I mean I. It's not. I thought like, at one point you were like maybe you didn't like how it had cut the the throw the, like the bone spinning going I up cuts do in. not like that yes yeah. i agree i do like the semantics of the match cut like our tools used to be a thing we hold in our hand and now they're like an entire spaceship i like the yeah yeah i like it, the, what it's trying to say yeah. i don't know that i love the cut in fact i would say this this is true of everybody's favorite match cuts in cinema history like the lawrence of arabia one I have the same feeling. I don't really actually love the cut that much, but I get what they were doing. And the same would be true here. Mm. It's like, I like the implication of the cut a lot. This one more so than Lawrence of Arabia even. But, uh, well, I don't know. Both of them, I love They're the kind implication. Of different. This one is actually like a true match cut. Lawrence is actually not really, it's a match cut and that there's a match, but yeah. it's it's actually not. It's an implication. It's a, it's more cut. of a, yeah, it's like. um. It's like, I am lighting this match and uh, here is like something starting in the desert. Like yeah, it's yeah. like it's, it's like, like an emotional match cut, but not a visual thematic one. match cut. Thematic, yeah. yeah. Whereas this one is visual thematic. And for me, I'm like, okay, I I like the thematics of the match cut. The cut itself, I'm like, nah, didn't look that great to me. Like I don't oh. love the look of the mm. cut. <sighs> I think Anna's in general, big day out well, in space. you know, interestingly, I think too the the editing in this movie feels really modern. Like, well, yes, it I, does. and I think part yeah. of that is. I, I'm assuming that this movie is part well, of the actually, reason. No, that's totally false. 
The editing in this movie well, feels anything out. but hear modern because out. modern editing is terrible. Okay, okay. Modern, good editing. I think editing. you mean like 1980s editing. Well, no, no, no. Hear me out. Hear me out. Yeah, all right. So there's a thing this movie does a lot, which is very popular now in certain... Like, I mean, just been watching Better Call Saul. Mm. And uh, and this sort of cut is really common in like the, the, the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul world. They love to do these, which is like... The Breaking Bad cinematic universe. That's right. Uh, which this movie, which 2001 does a lot... Which is like cutting like abruptly, it may be something loud and cacophonous, cutting abruptly to something like silent mm-hmm. and like cutting something in half. Yeah. Um, sure. A yeah. moment in half, basically, yep, yep, that feeling. Yeah. And mm-hmm. this movie, and 2001 does this a lot. Yeah. This is also a thing that happens a lot in, in uh, like, I mean, Better Call Saul, that's how the, the opening credits, like the opening yeah. intro ends, like they cut it off yeah. abruptly, too early, like a little too yeah. early, right? That's like a really common um editing thing you see in more like you know high-end production kind of shows with filmy made by filmy people and i guess i don't know the history of of it enough to know if if this was common before 2001 um i do not know i just don't Uh, know 2001 is around the time period where like I just haven't seen very many movies. Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to get too into Lawrence because that's a different movie we can talk yeah. about another time. But that's, I mean, that's 62. This is what, like 69? It's much later. I don't know. Um, It's 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 late 60s. Yeah. Whereas Lawrence is early 60s. So the match cut in Lawrence, which is the only cut really like that in that movie uh, that I can think of, was actually a, sort of an accident in the sense that it was supposed to be a, f- they were going to do a fade there. Ah. Um. But when they were editing it, they like played it through with that hard cut just because, and, and like, they ooh. they were like ooh, okay. Um, and they uh, by they it's it's uh, Ann Coates, um, who worked really closely with David Lean. But they but they left it in like that, and I feel like that cut is similar to this cut which I was just describing, which yes. happens a lot in two thousand one. Um, so I'm assuming is is this is the this is the era the sixties is when you started seeing this kind of editing, and I think that cut in Lawrence is so uh, was so important. Because it it was kind of one of the first of of its kind like that because they would they were just going to do a dissolve right yes which would have been a lot less effective yes um, absolutely and so I do think if two thousand one is there's in, a lot of fades and dissolves in filmmaking yes that just don't happen much anymore yes that we've kind of forgotten about yeah but it was rare like the hard cuts were not so common yeah if and, you were and, going between two things that weren't in the same scene. It was not that common well, to do hard yeah, cuts, and then, right? Yeah, and then so. and then two thousand one is doing basically taking it the next step further, which is cutting things off abruptly in a way that feels like slightly off. It, yeah. You know, it's kind of uh, yeah, unsettling, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Like uh, the one striking one that I can think of is the the first thing with the monolith, right? Like with, after the apes, the the apes, the early humans encounter the monolith for their first time, right? So the the Ligeti really dissonant yeah, coral it just, store it just drops Heart, immediately. Like, yeah. It's just. In the middle of that thought, basically, just yeah. hard cut to silence and like a, a quiet landscape yep. with nothing happening, yep. right? Um, and that feels really modern in a way. Um, and and I'm f- I can't say that this is the movie, right? That that made this a thing, but it's obviously a part of that history. Um, that's it's, a type it's like of a, it's like a point where you're like, okay, by the point by the time you get to 2001, they had totally figured out hard cuts. They were yeah. like, we can use these in all kinds of places that maybe in early cinema, you know, who knows how far back you have to go. But like at some point you get back to a thing where people were probably afraid to hard cut because it's too jarring. It could also even be that audiences wouldn't have been ready for it. Like 
the fade was necessary to let them know that the scene was changing, like almost like a curtain coming down and going back up or it's something. Just, it's like you know, bold. Sixties um, was an era of of like some really and, bold filmmaking, and and things started to change. And people have to be ready for it, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you know, the at some point, humans are now a culture to seeing things on a screen. It's just that's how it works, and. You know, from from the time that you're little, you've seen them, you can internalize them very easily, and you are not confused by these spatial cuts. So this movie, I would say the the editing, while I would say the pacing might feel a bit slow to a modern audience, because I think... For all know, I know, the pacing felt slow for a then audience, though. That's true, but I, I, I do think in general, the editing feel... The pacing may not feel that modern, but the editing feels extremely modern. I agree. 100% agree. Um, so anyway, sorry, that's a bit of a side, like a side tangent, but I just, we had moved no, past it makes that, sense. Yeah, that yeah. cut between the two scenes, which I yes. think is like, you can't not mention when no, you're talking a, about this movie. No, it's a very movie. good point. It's a very good point. It's very, very, very well done. It's like, like what I was saying before, but that feeling of just this thing is like, has always existed. It's brilliant in a way that I don't feel like I, I, I see film. Uh, and well, I mean, that I guess whole it, opening is really brilliant in that way because it tells this, it, it tells the story of why tools were important to humans pretty much flawlessly and with no dialogue, title cards, or anything. The only thing on the screen is Dawn of Man. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> right? It's like perfect, um, perfect visual It's perfect visual storytelling story pretty much from start to finish. You get every last thing in there, right? You see how they were killed by other predators mm-hmm. because they can't defend themselves yeah, against like cowering, a tiger. And at night, they're kind of cowering. They're and cowering because and... they have no way to build shelter or clothing. They have to fight over a water hole and they're, they don't really have a way to fight with other. They just kind of try and make themselves feel more intimidating and there's not. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Uh, they're just chased away. One of the groups is just chased away from the watering hole. And then they show how it all turns around with the tool use, how all of those things can change. And also the part where he learns the tool use or she, I don't know. Uh, you can't tell. I don't know. Um, learns the tool use is like uh, the cut with the tapir like falling and mm-hmm. smashing the skull. Like the, oh, just, the editing. The editing it's of like that showing scene. Yeah. perfectly like this creature is learning that a thing that they've been trying to do for a long time that's very hard for them suddenly is becoming easy just by holding this thing in their hand. Duh. Like, right? It's yep. this moment of like realization. So perfect. Uh, and then they show now they can chase the other people away because they can just like beat one of the dudes down who was, you know, trying to be alpha and chase them away. They just whack him with this club yep. and all of them can do it. Every It's not only their like alpha... Um, you know, it's any of them. They like run up, just just random people from the group run up and, and whack him with this thing. And he's just down. There's nothing he can do about it. It's like, it's really good at just showing like, this is what tools do. It totally changes the dynamic. And it's what makes humans humans. They aren't special pretty much in any other way mm-hmm. other than like they can use tools. Their brain is capable of like tool use to a sophisticated degree. And so I do feel like that, per- it's really a masterpiece, that first part of the movie, uh, pretty much from start to finish. Yep. And like you said, it's also easy to underestimate just how hard it would have been to make these creatures that feel plausibly like half human, half ape. Uh, the acting is just incredibly good there. Uh, and so are the like prosthetics. Like they look very ape-like. Yeah. Uh, their faces look very convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, so just fantastic work pretty much all, all around. Yeah. So I suppose we've sort of talked about the moon base. Yeah, part. I'm not sure there's much. much to say. Yeah. Um, um, I love, I do love this, the scene where they find it, that, that building dread, the, the Ligeti score like that. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. just, oh, and I, I think there's actually another cut of the, the variety that we are talking about between these two sections of the movie, right? You hear this uh, incredibly high-pitched sigh, like whine. I don't know. Scru- it's the transmission, yeah. Um, it's it's excruciating, right? It's really hard even for the view, for the audience. And then it cuts to silence, and uh, at, at to start, and then that beautiful uh, track by the the composer whose name I don't remember. Um, a and composer then, to be named later. And it's just like that, That it's the same sort of thing where you, you go from like loud, intense, hard cut to like serenity and peacefulness. And it's like, it's really. So one of the things that I noticed um, and, you know, to kind of, one of the things we haven't really done yet, we kind of pointed out the fact that one of the reasons that Interstellar, we sort of said we should do 2001 is because there's sort of two reasons. One we already mentioned, which is that that sort of like, uh, real that tangible filmmaking mm-hmm. they both do it very well uh, that was I think one of the things we were remarking about when we watched Interstellar was like wow like this this is one of those things that feels like 2001 like, like someone wanted every last little thing in these shots to feel tangible and real mm-hmm. we probably don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole if you've seen both movies you know what the you know what the references are. Yes. Uh, but, you know, the spinning ships. Is and the like, organ hold, like you pointed yeah, out. There's a lot uh, of references. Like, and right. even the plot in general is yeah, very Yeah, the general idea of it. Like, yeah. it's just, you know, it's like an affectionate, yeah. you know, homage to it. But now maybe we can start talking a little bit about how they part ways. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the that feeling of tangible reality in 2001 is like, for better or for worse, unflinching. Mm. At no point in this movie is it ever, even for a a second of screen time, it is never willing to break with the feeling that everything is actually happening. It, Mm -hmm. It will never deviate from that, in my opinion. I can't think of a single part in that film that ever... For 2001. ...ever does that. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Interstellar, which does seem to do, uh, you know, it's it's definitely trying to do the same sort of filmmaking where all of, all of the stuff is practical and tangible and feels yeah. right. The story is complete nonsense with that from that perspective. Yeah. Like we said, it when we we're talking about, it, we're like, wait, Matthew McConaughey's just kind of shows up at this place, and then they, like they're like, hey, why don't you pilot the rocket? Like, what are you talking about? Well, yeah, about? I, I actually. Right? I was thinking and, about this with 2001 too. That what that exact thing where, like the fact that we don't even follow the same characters this throughout is exactly the story. What I was bringing up. Yeah, yeah. Yes. I was like, you 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 use the characters you need to to kind of communicate this bigger idea. Yeah, and it's like in 2001, the very natural thing from a sort of like, well, this isn't real life. This is fiction. The very natural thing to do would have been to say, well, that that guy we followed at the beginning is the, also the lead guy on this. Uh, Jupiter mission for some reason. Right, right, right. right. And in 2001, it wouldn't really have been that implausible, not nearly as implausible of the things that happened in Interstellar. But even so, like I said, unflinching, they were like, no, there's no way that the person who is in charge of these sort of like um, bureaucratic operations would be the person who's 
doing a Jupiter mission, right? Yep. Like, that's just not how things work yeah, in the yeah. real and world. And he does show up at the end. He's the one who, you know, the recording is On the is recording, from him, which so, is plausible, yeah. right? So it's, but it's, but it's he's a, not on the ship, yeah. right? No, and it's it's awesome. It's yeah. great. It's like, it's the story is so much bigger uh, and yes. it makes and in, yeah. in doing so makes it feel so much more real yeah, because that's what you just described this is what it's I'm like saying. you know your main character there are not really main characters in no. real life that's not a thing yeah. right unless you're like Forrest Gump in real life right where it's like you happen to be there for all these things happening or whatever yeah. but yeah it's just it it's such a great decision it's something you don't see very often in movies well and i think like i said i don't have a strong opinion about it i don't think it's good or bad Actually, but it's un- it's uncommon. Well, here I was going to say something slightly stronger. What it is is consistent, and I think that's what I liked so much about it. It's like you can say anything else you want about two thousand and one. Yeah, it literally never breaks its own stride. It is like the same force of decision making from the start of the movie to the end of the movie, with literally no exceptions. Yeah. So the screenplay is the same as the shooting, is the same as the sets, is the same as the editing. It is always trying to be like 100% tangible. There's almost no concessions. No. Well, and the confidence, right? Like, as I, that's yeah. what I said at the beginning. It feels like such a confident movie and because all the decisions feel so united and, and like, it's hard to even question the decisions. Like, that's yeah. the thing is like... You know, even that you were like, oh, I would have done it this way. I'm like, no, you wouldn't. Right? Like, I'm like... There's... No, I would have. No, no, I'm, I'm just saying... I'm not saying I... the movie should have. Sure. I'm just saying, for me, I'm like, no. But, like, it's hard for me to even... It's hard for me to even say, oh, this could have been done differently. Because it's like, no. It yeah. couldn't have. It's, yeah. it's like, mean, yeah. it's this perfect... Yeah, you're probably right. ...thing that exists exactly as it exists. And the idea that you would have done anything different feels, like, wrong. Well, here's one thing I will say. There is... One aspect of the filmmaking that I do feel departs from this, though. Okay. uh, And that is the music. So the music is not real. And I think, like, I I guess I don't know the the sort of thinking behind that. But, like, everything else in 2001 is as if it were real. The complete 2001 going all the way to 100% in all aspects of the filmmaking would have been like, okay, there's no music. It's just sound. It's just a sound that would actually be there. Which, I mean, it is for a lot of the movie. This is why I say the music is a little weird because it's like, it's not that I don't understand the decision. It's just like, it's a little idiosyncratic compared to how everything else was done. It's like everything else wants to be 100% accurate, right down to the no sound in space if there was no way to hear this, then we can't hear it kind of a thing. Yeah. Um, and so it is a little weird to have this very clearly, you know, extra, you know, I don't know what the correct term is for it, but outside the movie, like outside the scene, thing that comes in. And and, and I don't know why that decision was made. I, I, being the person who would have made more concessions in direction, like it. Uh, I mean, but, in this movie, if you remove you know, the classical music from this movie, it is not the movie anymore, right? It is It is. Worse. And so that's why I say it's a little inconsistent. It's hard, I don't know. I'd love to hear. have heard more of that thought process. Maybe there is somewhere where uh, Stanley Kubrick talks about that. I mean, but I can imagine. I, I mean, I guess if I just had to guess, the, the use of classical music is like, 
feels somehow timeless or ancient or something in a way that if you had some modern music composed specifically for the movie, it might somehow be less effective because it's... I mean, this mu- this music was contemporaneous, though. Some at of least, it was. At least the Leggetti part. I and don't, I think the other one... The I other think one, the Strauss the, one was at least very close. I mean, I, I guess I don't know. It's more of a music style choice than a... Like, you know, the music for Star Wars feels timeless, but it was composed for well, Star the other thing Wars. I was so gonna, it's really... A, it's about well, what the style of the music is The thing is I was just going to say, right? too, though, is like, you know, I'm saying that now. Oh, it's timeless. But, like, would we even know Blue Danube if it weren't for 2001 A Space Odyssey? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean... Obviously, some or or also Sprach Zarathustra, right? Like those the 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 movie is what made those those things such a part of the the cultural consciousness, right? I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure classical music people would still know those pieces, but would the mainstream would they be so iconic? I don't know. So uh, one of the things that I guess we should move on to now is like like the Jupiter part, yeah, because we haven't talked very much about that. I guess I'll just jump right into this because it's the thought that I was thinking about, and why not? So, again, comparing contrasting 2001 to Interstellar. Yeah. Um, I feel like Interstellar and 2001 almost perfectly capture two opposing views of how the world is working at a particular time. And uh, I think it makes perfect sense, again, when you think about 60s versus, you know, 2010 or whenever Interstellar was. I don't know. Somewhere around 2010. In 2001, the humans are flawless, very competent. Yep. They do not make mistakes. Yep. Not very emotional. They're very well trained. They do things right. Uh, There is not a single mistake in the film, ever. That a human makes. Yeah. Right? Yep. The computers... Are a disaster. Uh, they don't work. They're unreliable, and then they're actively antagonistic. Yes, I would say Interstellar is the exact opposite. In Interstellar, mm-hmm. all of the hardware and computers work flawlessly. There's never a problem. The robots are flawless. They never make a mistake. The computer systems are 100% operational the entire time. All of the hardware works actually even after going through severe failures. The humans are completely unreliable and often stupid and actively antagonistic. Yeah. And it's very interesting to note that dichotomy. It's not yeah. a little bit. It's literally they change places. Yeah, In yeah. Interstellar, the people are Hal and yes. the computers are Bowman. And the exact opposite is true in 2001. The humans are, you know, the, you know, the, are the equivalent of the computers. Self-sacrificing, rock solid under pressure, right? Yep. It just, it's completely flipped. Yep. It's completely oh, that's, flipped. That's a great observation, yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, like in, in Matthew McConaughey in Interstellar is, is very competent and, and very, like, serious and getting the job done. And everyone else is not. Uh, I mean, Anne Hathaway is a disaster. She makes horrible decisions. She has no idea what she's talking about half the time. Yep. Matt Damon is not only he betrays crazy, them. I mean, but yeah. evil crazy. Yep. He's he's so incompetent that he's like basically sabotaging the mission for his own ends. Yep. Um, I guess like, you know, nominally there are two other astronauts uh, who we don't really see make a lot of choices. But Matthew McConaughey is the only person. Oh, and even back on Earth, like uh, Michael Caine's just a liar. And so, you know, it's it's very interesting to see. Whereas in 2001, 
Everyone's very professional. Everyone on the moon base, 100% professional, right? They're discussing things like adults. Everything's going incredibly precise. The stewardesses on the flight to the moon are more competent than most of the astronauts in Interstellar. Yeah. They're like precisely walking around this thing. They're putting someone's pen back in their pocket, right? They're like, Mm -hmm. everything is exact and precise. And uh, I thought that was really interesting when I was watching these movies. I was like... They they both capture a different view, mm-hmm. a very different view of where the competence is, right? No, it's it's a great observation. And so I think that really is is shown very dramatically in uh, the sort of the Jupiter the the midsection of of two thousand and one yes. because the astronauts feel more like real astronauts. They are yeah. very competent. Yeah, and I kind of you know I don't. Uh, maybe yeah, definitely. I've I've seen some things maybe post sixties where maybe astronauts aren't, aren't all that competent. But at least at that time, I kind of get the sense that like you know, uh, if Buzz Aldrin had to like throw the lunar module up into space to get it launched, he probably could have. Like these guys are like just absolutely yeah, like, like cool under pressure, stoic. Yep. And, you know, I would be freaking out or something and they'd just be like, all right, well, you know, we got to do this thing. And in 2001, that really comes across like these astronauts are incredibly like focused. They'd never freak out. I mean, this is this is I mean, that's obviously I think like just uh, that's the, t- the time period they were in. Like this was right when the Apollo stuff was happening. Yeah. You know, so it makes sense that that's that's the image that people would have in their heads of of space stuff and astronauts. They'd never had anything else to yeah to see to think about. Yeah. Um, whereas now, space stuff is is not really very present in in I mean even you know or ten fifteen years ago you know in the case of Interstellar is like you know at that point space shuttle wasn't happening anymore. It was not a big deal to the culture. You can see the difference between Interstellar and this. To the extent that they reflect the wider culture is a separate discussion. But, you know, they you can see it. You can see it in the two movies that the filmmakers took a different... Uh, they had a different view on what would be going right and wrong mm-hmm. in the future. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I do think part of that, so. too, maybe less of a cultural reflection and in some ways just a way movies have changed kind of thing, too, where Nolan probably felt like he had to have... More conflict, more, ca- more conflict, more character things. driven. Yeah. So I don't. I, I may not be cultural. Even it might just be like, well, this is what movies have now, right? People want a main character. They want conflict. Audiences like drama. They like interpersonal drama. So we have to have that in this movie, right? I agree because it is largely missing from two thousand one. Uh, there's not a lot of characterization. We don't know who these people are. We have no idea what their backstory is. We they're don't, really just like generic astronauts. They're just man. an astronaut doing astronaut things. Um, like I said, it's. Very close to a documentary in that sense. It's like, and a documentary that doesn't even follow. It doesn't go into their backstory. Their backstory, which yeah. modern, even modern documentaries would feel uncomfortable yeah, I mean, showing this little information about a person. Yeah, I mean, the most right? you get is like some video chats from their family. Yep. Like that it happens for the two, for two of the characters. They yep. get like a, a video message. Yep. That's it. That's the and extent that's of it. it. Like, yeah, like happy birthday, uh, yep. right? Or the other one's like their the daughter, daughter yeah, right? Yeah. So um, in, I guess, I don't think there's much point in talking a lot about the Jupiter mission side of things because honestly, like, it's very straightforward. Exactly, right? yeah. It's, it's, it's extreme, it looks fantastic, like you said. Everything feels extremely real. Mm-hmm. Um, the desi- Hal is just 
brilliant. Uh, the, I was the, just going to say, like, we should talk more about the shots, because I think that's the interesting part in this part, is, like, how it's shot. So, sorry, go ahead with how. Oh, just, I mean, design uh, across the board. That eye. Uh, it's so good. Unsettling. The, the, the camera. <laughs> yep. And it's always and the voice, there. the voice, too. Oh, my God. Um, it's so good. And, the uh, you know, the sound design, keep coming back to that, but just throughout, like, that low rumble. I mean, things that make it feel really realistic, but also really make it feel just creepy and like there's some imminent danger uh things are going to go wrong like everything is contributing to this feeling of dread i think the my favorite part uh of that is actually when it it's watching their lips yes it's like really very well done to make you it just feels so creepy like yeah it's just very good and they managed to make the computer very scary and unsettling without ever actually doing anything overt. Like they never really, nothing scary is ever really shown on the screen in in an overtly scary way. It's all like psychologically scary, right? It's all just like slowly kind of poisoning your view of this system. I mean, what, yeah, when, you know? and when Hal, when Hal does start actually taking action... It's pretty jarring, too, because the momentum suddenly really picks up. Like, yeah. that shot where he, like, when he first cuts off the, I, I can't think of the other, there's Dave and then his, his buddy. I can't think of the, the other character's name. But when he's out doing his EVA, right, and yeah. Hal cuts him off and he yeah. goes flying. Yeah, yeah. And the shot you see is, like, the little shot of him, yeah. like, going through the, it's just like. Yeah, yeah. And again, back to the uh, astronaut competence. The other dude just immediately starts doing things. Right, right? he doesn't no, panic. He's not freaking out. Yeah, yeah. Right, it's like it's really weird. Again, I like I said the the view. It's hard to overstate the differing views on humanity between these two movies. Uh, between this and Interstellar, it's it's so insane. No, it's really um, it's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I think both and both views of humanity are are true in their own way. I mean, both kinds of humans exist. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's true. Um, this one is a very optimistic view of the future, whereas Interstellar is a very pessimistic view of the future, mm-hmm. I would say, in general. But It does sort of end on an optimistic note, but... Um... Yeah, I mean, not really. Like, like Interstellar ends is sort of suggesting that, like, it will turn around, which like, is different than we'll being keep, optimistic. Or we'll just, but we'll keep going, we will persevere, yeah, we will maybe. continue. Yeah, I don't know. Hard to say. Anyway, point being, shots in this part of the film, I also wanted to bring up, there's a shot where, uh, in fact, it's the open the pod bay doors, Hal, Mm -hmm. famous line from this movie. The shot of the main ship and the EVA looking at each other Mm -hmm. is probably my favorite shot in this entire film. Really? It's It's so cool looking, Mm -hmm. and it just kind of sits there on the screen, and they let you... It sinks in, yep. you know? Yep. Um, I thought that yeah. shot was beautiful. Space in this part of the movie feels really scary. Yeah. And, like, the distance, you know, you keep, they keep having to go away from yeah. the ship in these pods. And, yeah. And it's just, there's always this feeling of, like, oh, God, something could go wrong here, right? Um, yes. And the breathing sound. Uh, I, I think there's also, so you, you brought up the fact that the shot where he gets back in through the airlock. Mm-hmm is just 
kind of mind blowing. And and you know, I didn't even think about it at the time. It's so perfect. I just it just I was like, oh, they probably just shot this in space. <laughs> I think is what my in my head was thinking. <laughs> yeah. Like they probably went up to space and shot yeah. a guy getting that's ejected into movie, an airlock. That's how this movie feels. It feels uh, like they just went to they shot, on shot on location. It does. They was just shot on location. But then in my head, I'm like, wait a minute, no, they can't do that. Wait, what <laughs> am I thinking? They can't even do that now. Uh, so so obviously that's not what happened. Uh, so I have no idea they did that. That's a very good point that you brought up. Never thought about that. I have no idea they made that shot. What I was going to say is on the masterful filmmaking uh, side of things, I would also point out that whatever they did in terms of setting up the shot for filming Bowman's, I don't know what you want to call it. He's wearing like a, he's wearing a helmet Mm -hmm. and lights are reflected on the helmet. I wanted to mention that too. Yes. It's absolutely breathtaking. Yes. It it looks amazing. Yep. Uh, It's the best, like, uh, I don't know, like lighting I've ever seen in a shot like that. It's it's truly remarkable. Yeah, it happens multiple times, and it's yeah. I, it's, I, once when yeah. he's just repairing, well, not repairing, removing the unit that's supposedly going to fail, and then again when he goes to the monolith at the end. And it's so striking. It's, it's just yeah. insane. Um, and the shot composition of that was absolutely masterful. Yep. I mean, like just incredible. Yep. So I wanted to point that out because it's a subtle yep. thing, but it's like. I don't even Again, think it's that com- subtle. It's it's really notable. Like it, you, you, I don't know what exactly about it makes it so. Um, I mean, it's like just the cinematic and, eye. Yeah, I mean, there's yeah. nothing hard about constructing a shot like that. No. I don't think. Um, in terms of like technical, it's not like the air- airlock shot where it's like I just don't even know how they did that. You know, like that's just you know it's like technical wizardry that right. I don't know what yeah. it is. It's something maybe master filmmakers of that time would know, but I have no idea. But this one is just like, it's just art direction. It's like the cinematography of that shot is flawless. Mm -hmm. And again, you see this kind of shot all the time nowadays. Uh, There's always, you've got these reflections, these things. They all look like crap. This one is absolutely stunning. It's like a work of art. Yeah. Similarly along those lines, I wanted to mention a couple other things. The ship in 2001. Which ship? (laughs) uh, The main ship, the Jupiter ship. Okay. The long one. Um. It seems like Star Wars cribbed heavily from this, unless there was more uh, earlier sort of things that they were both drawing on. Uh, Watching this film kind of carefully this time, I noticed that, like, the engines in the back are very Star Destroyer. How it moves across the screen feels very Star Destroyer. Uh, The greebling, so the surfaces feel like 2001 like it feels like they just took them directly yeah, well, and put them to Star I mean, Wars. Star Wars is um, not that is not very much later than this movie. It, so they would have been using a lot of the same technology with and, miniatures yeah. and lighting and yeah. and uh for all we know the same te- company, you know, the same team people, made the people maybe, maybe yeah, were know. making the miniatures and making the So I mean cuz I mean we're talking about movies that are less than 10 years apart. Yeah. So well, the, and the, to me, that was very interesting. I was like, oh, yeah. wow, this really presages it quite a bit. Yeah. It's like I, I can sort of see the direct line between these two because, uh, you know, it's easy to – so nowadays we just kind of know, like, futuristic spaceships have this greebling on them, right? Uh, it's like it's like a series of s- raised squares kind of haphazardly across the surface of a thing. And, 
you know, it, why? Like, like I have no idea why. Someone decided that was the thing that was going to happen, and, and this is the earliest example I know of, and everything after it is this way. Every last little thing is this way. And I'm just wondering, is this the movie that introduced, like, hey, spaceships in the future, they've got greebling. That's what this looks like. Or whatever. Maybe. Uh, because if you think about, like, the moon mission, like, the Apollo missions or, or, like, the Soviet space program, they don't look like this. Yeah. It's not what they look like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, a, there's a visual change there between what actual space stuff looks like and what the space stuff looks like in 2001. But from 2001 on, everything looks like 2001. Everything looks like the ship in 2001 that I can think of from then on. I don't care what it is. Star Wars, Battlestar Galactica, yeah. it all looks like the ship from 2001. That's I very mean, interesting to me. I think it's it's hard to say because during that time period, 50s and 60s, there was a lot of like space stuff in general, like science fiction. But that looked more like the actual space stuff. I don't know if that's me. true. I mean, there's novels and right. I mean, there, there was TV shows. I'm just saying, yeah. Yeah. sci-fi was a huge thing. Yeah, that's true. And a lot of the design... The visual design of spaceships from that era is was super influential. I, I'm not sure I could say that 2001 was like the thing. I'm sure it was a. I mean, 2001 was extremely influential in so many ways. So it's of of course it, I'm sure it played a big part in it. But I can't say that is the thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. And so I said that it was very interesting to me to see because I was like, man, I never really thought about no, that. No, it's true though. Oh, yeah. The designs are. Uh, I mean, I don't know. I, we could look up who you know who. I obviously know who did the Star Wars stuff, but. I don't know who did the Yeah, I don't either. Stuff. And it'd be Is interesting it... to, to see like where that design comes from or like how they thought of that. So uh, is there anything else you want to talk about in the Jupiter section? I don't think so. I mean, I think we basically covered it. As you said, it's a fairly straightforward, it's very straightforward section of the movie. Yeah. Um, okay, so then moving on to the end, uh, you know, eventually uh, after basically unplugging their computer for all intents and purposes. And he's the only one left also. Yeah, he's the Everyone's only one dead. Left. Um, Dave is the only one left. Makes it to Jupiter, finds the the uh, transmission relay, which is that little uh, you know, basically what happened for those who didn't read the book is the the moon transmission, which is that loud sound that plays, was basically sending a signal to that uh, obelisk that's floating there, the monolith, which is a relay. Um, he goes into the relay and it's gets a monolith, man. The movie doesn't say it's a relay. Sorry. You're talking about the, the book. monolith. No, I'm just saying, you know, we're talking about the movie, not the book. Okay, sorry. You sorry. can't, don't bring up stuff from the book that's not relevant or in the movie. It's he a, goes into the monolith, a monolith. There's three monoliths, it's not the monolith. Well, I didn't know. I was assuming they could be the same monolith. Like, we don't know, right? Oh, so you think it could have teleported. Yeah. Or it exists in multiple places in time. Like, yeah, that's this fair. Is, the idea of the monolith for me, anyway, is that it's this thing beyond our understanding. You are I, correct. It's timeless. It's everywhere. That's I, yeah. true in the book as well. So, yeah. So, for me, it doesn't matter. It could be any or all of the above. It, it never, it, you know. Okay, so he goes into the monolith at Jupiter that's like orbit, kind of floating in space unlike the other ones not on the surface of anything and uh, this part of the movie i would say i'm halves and halvesies on Mm -hmm. i love the initial part where it's like the rolling sheet kind of like two sheets that you're sort of sandwiched between yeah yeah, yeah. almost like a psychedelic sandwich and it like cuts between these creepy shots of his face like in in agony yeah like still shots very creepy um i love that part the like Two-tone landscapes are just stupid. I think, yeah, that's the, that's the one part where I think it's it would have been better off without that because it, absolutely it you can uh, your brain obviously knows that it's just landscapes. It doesn't like, work. Yeah, 
Whereas the other the other stuff like the weird like ink drop the I don't yeah. liquid thing like you're like they look otherworldly uh where the landscape ones just looks like landscape shot with like a weird like with a weird color filter on it or whatever right so I totally agree that scene is I I really love the I love how long it is I love how oppressive it is I do just think that that one section I would of have it, cut that part out yeah, for sure or, yeah it just replaced doesn't hold it with up. something else maybe that felt more more um, especially in a movie where everything looks so good it's the one thing that looks really bad and yeah. you're just like this shouldn't be in this movie. It brings well, it down. And, and it, to me, it's not. It's less how it looks and more just that your brain recognizes it. And I think that's a problem. Well, to me, to it's m- both. So, uh, but otherwise, like the sequence, mm-hmm. just I would have maybe cut the back half of it where they're doing those parts. Just get rid of it mm-hmm. and you'd be good. And then the the part that takes place sort of in the, uh, the room. kind of weird, like, hotel feeling or like a so royal like almost it's almost like a palace it's so creepy though um i feel like at this point it switches over to the shining you can feel so clearly that the same person made these two movies it has this yeah. sort of spacious feeling very unsettled and uncomfortable mm-hmm. in a rarefied location it's uh my favorite part by far of this sequence is when he's walking and hears the sound of someone eating dinner and like looks back and there's just like this like figure there you can't see who's like cutting something like on his plate right it has all of those same shining feels to well, and me the sound i don't um, know what there's this like terrifying yeah. audio track thing where it's like yeah. like these mo- almost like inhuman moans yeah. like just very very unsettling i love the effect of him the transition from like he sees his future, like a, a version of him that's in the and future, and then he's gone, and then he's gone, yeah. and it's uh, it, that's just really good. This this part of the movie is mostly what I was referring to in Interstellar last week, where I was like yes. that surreal, that feeling that the it's beyond your understanding that yes. it's it's extremely surreal, extremely creepy, unsettling. Like Kubrick is kind of nailing that feeling here in yes. a way that Nolan I don't think is capable of. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So. It's almost like the same ending, right? Like, yeah. I, I mean, I, I don't want to overstate it, but like to a certain degree, it is the exact same ending in both movies. It's just they're both about presenting a four-dimensional kind of like time is now not really a thing for this character. They've they're sort of transcending through a barrier that we can't really quite understand, but we sort of can, that like, you know, there's there's this falling away of the notion of like a being in a particular time. And now you're kind of like across time and uh, you're going through some sort of like metamorphosis mm-hmm. to be able to experience that mm-hmm. or whatever. And the, the Matthew McConaughey behind a bookshelf thing <laughs> is just so deflating to such a grand, like, transformative concept. Like, a five-dimensional Matthew McConaughey is not, like, literally behind a bookshelf, like, wailing on the books. It's just, it's it's difficult to overstate just how uncompelling that is. Like, it really brings the ending of the moving down tremendously because mm-hmm. it makes it so concrete and so uninteresting almost laughable like to me it was just a joke oh yeah it was silly it was silly yeah whereas with the 2001 one i don't know i wonder if other people have the exact opposite reaction i guess this is what i would ask yeah this um, is a good time cuz obviously like the ending to 2001 is 
is pretty unusual. And so I imagine it yeah. could be polarizing for or, certain. Or th- appear silly to, to other people because there's this little baby, right? This, right? Yeah, but and somehow it's it's not silly. It's to like. To me, it's the yeah. opposite, right? Yeah. Like 2001 is very serious and ends with like a really like powerful feeling. And Interstellar was the opposite. It was very silly and I, I had trouble taking it seriously. And I'm wondering yeah. like, what do people think? Like this yeah. would be a good question yeah. for in general, like the club. Yeah. They're both trying to communicate something complicated. I think Kubrick succeeds at that yeah. pretty well. You come away somehow understanding while not understanding, right? Like you don't really understand what you just ex- saw, but you you feel the right feeling. Like you yes. you you kind of have an understanding. You maybe couldn't explain it in words. Like right. if you asked me to explain the ending in words, I don't think I could. Um Right. Right. But that's yeah. I mean to me that's one of the 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 great things about film as a medium about you know, sequential yes, storytelling. You can experience something that you wouldn't necessarily be able to narrate. Like you wouldn't necessarily yeah. be able to, to give someone the play-by-play there's if no, they couldn't I mean, actually see it. There's no words at all. Yeah, it's just it's visuals and sounds, and yeah. and in in just that we're able to come come away with a, a a fairly complex feeling. And and I think Interstellar is trying to do. It's trying to use its words, right? And it's trying to be more yeah, concrete. Yeah, like it's very like heavy-handed and concrete and like it just doesn't feel like that's helping anything. Mm-hmm. It just makes it less majestic while still not really... I mean, the problem is it's concrete and not. It's concrete but also has a lot of problems that it that like don't make any sense. So you're just like, it's both... Because it's trying, it's trying to go halfway. Like it's trying to partly be... It's trying to explain something completely... But the explanation doesn't really work. So it's like the worst of both worlds. Yeah. You you not only like didn't do a good job creating something that was actually like made interesting sense on its own, and you also deflated any potential for it feeling beyond comprehension. It's just it was it's just bad. But yeah, I mean like whatever's going on with the ending of two thousand one is like it's next level. <laughs> it's doing something pretty. It does it pretty much, pretty much perfectly. That sort of feeling of like, okay, this is like an evolutionary step. Like this person's going through a metamorphosis. There's this weird, like time is sort of becoming a different thing uh, where he's able to experience multiple parts of time at once. Mm-hmm. Like all that stuff comes across yeah. very cleanly, but at the same time, like th- no one's explaining who or why or or how that's happening. And to me that, yeah, that's like the right choice. Yep. It, it feels like an important future thing for humanity that we don't understand right now. Yes. And that's what it should. Yep. Totally. It's, uh, it's. I mean, it's brilliant. 2001 Space Odyssey is a brilliant movie. I mean, me, I, 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 I want to hear from our, our movie club members though. I want to know like, uh, like what are, what are your feelings? You know, I would also be interested to know like with the breakdown of people because, like I said, for me, I don't like the pacing of this movie, mm-hmm. and uh, you do like the pacing of this movie. Yeah. this is unsurprising because like you're someone who likes Roma. I can't stand it. Um, so the parts of this movie that are Roma esque, right? Like holding shots for a long time even after we know what's happening and that sort of stuff, I don't care for. That is definitely like a subjective thing. Like you can right. just kind of see it's like okay. It's a preference. It's a personal preference. Personal thing. preference. Some people are gonna like this. Some people aren't. So I'd be interested also to know like where did you where did you fall on that line? Mm-hmm. I imagine some people are gonna be like, yeah, way too slow paced. That's more like me. Other people are gonna be like, it was just right. That's yeah. more like you. Yeah, because it's like I think you know the experience for me that that 
you sitting in the theater especially but even at home it's a know? bummer people couldn't see this in the theater but yeah. yeah but i mean like let it it's for me it's like that's when i really truly love a movie is when i'm i'm experiencing something and it's always the combination of all the factors the music the visuals right where yeah. you're you're immersed and for me those long scenes it's like you get into this cool zone where you're just experiencing this thing you know one thing i should mention before we close because i think we're pretty much wrapped up yeah, i think we basically covered the whole movie one thing i wanted to mention was uh just in case we ever do and i'm sure we probably won't but maybe if this somehow this movie club is a success and it runs for 10 years or something, <laughs> maybe someday we will, for some reason, do the third man. I doubt third we will. Third man. I doubt we will. I'm not sure how that's ever going to come up. But let's just say at some point, for some reason, we're doing, uh, you know, we're, we're doing an Orson Welles marathon. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, man, you never know. Oh, no. Gosh, think of the wrong movie. A Touch of Evil. Oh, okay. Orson Welles. I'm just, just, I have Orson Welles in my head and the third man came up. No, no. Touch of Evil. I want to just mention that there was a, a Touch of Evil shot in this. Okay. And I noticed it. Which shot? So for any other movie club members out there who noticed this, I just want to say I was right there with you. <laughs> um, and that is that uh, I, I won't spoiler what happens in A Touch of Evil because we're not at that yet. We haven't watched that yet in the movie club. But in this movie, multiple times, they are very, very clear to show you when the EVA, EVA, EVA is the name of that little pod, the little spherical thing that well, no, runs around? Well, no, EVA is not the name of the pod. The EVA oh. is just the activity, I believe. Okay, so whatever that pod, the spherical the pod, little the pod, things, the, the pods. Pod, I mean. When the pod prepares to launch... It rotates into place, and it's very clear to show you this big thing that says explosive bolts. Yes. Yep. Right? Yep. Multiple times it does this. Multiple times. Multiple times to let you know that, you know, hey. That's going to come back. This is coming back, right? Um, and uh, and so I just thought I'd mention that one for those of you who, who noticed that. Uh, if you were thinking a touch of evil, so was I. All right. That's it. Well, there That's you go. I'm say. So... Anyway, good movie, really solid movie, classic. Definitely a classic, and I do like it as much as I don't love the pacing. It's a lot of the stuff about the movie I really do love. So, uh, yeah, and and man, it just looks gorgeous. Such a beautiful, beautiful film. Um, it's incredible. They don't make them like they used to, They folks. don't make them they like they used to. do not make them like they used to. Well, everyone, thank you so much for joining us for Molly Rocket Movie Club. Actually, sorry, just Molly Movie Club. Yeah, we don't put the rocket in because it's too hard to type. Yeah, it's too long. It's too long. Molly Movie Club, you know, you can't even get the Twitter handle Molly Rocket Movie Club. It's too oh, long. It, it's too long. Yeah, it's it just too up. long. So Molly Movie Club, but you know what we mean. You we know. don't mean to leave Rocket out. We love Rocket. We he's, love Rocket Bean. He's a great puss. Great cat. So Molly Movie Club, thanks for joining us. www.mollymovieclub.com. Let us know everything you thought about 2001. Yeah, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And, uh, yeah, and we will see you next week for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. That's right. Which I don't, I don't want to give anything away. Don't say anything. If you've never seen it. But I'm just going to say one of my favorite films. You love this movie. So. All right, folks. Take it easy. We'll see you next week. We'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs>